It's always a reminder that um, how important it is to be on our email list so that if we have to cancel due to inclement weather, that you will um, you'll be aware of that and not get not get uh, caught up in the rain. Although we figure most people ought to have enough common sense that that if it looks like it's going to rain, like Noah's flood, then uh, you ought not go out in your cars. Although sometimes we get caught. Like th- those of us who've been around here a while remember a Bible class night. Probably, probably been twelve or thirteen years now, but it started raining about ten minutes before Bible class started. People who were a little bit late were soaked just getting in, but it rained hard for three or four hours, and you couldn't get you could get out on the frontage road of the Beltway, but you couldn't get down to Hammerley because Hammerley had cars floating in the intersection. You couldn't turn on Haddington going out of the parking lot this way because it was about a foot over the curb. And so we just had to sit in here for about oh, several hours. Bible class was over with, I think. That's when we were starting at 8. We were done at 9 o'clock, but nobody could leave until almost midnight. And ever since then, we decided that discretion is the better part of valor. And if it looks like it's going to rain hard, then we just don't want everybody trapped here for... Uh, until the next day. So that's why we cancel. And if you looked at the radar any at all last Thursday night, it looked like this storm just exploded right here. This was the epicenter, and it just you just saw this on the times, uh, uh, you know, as you as you ran the timeline on the on the radar, it just started with this red dot that got bigger and bigger and bigger really fast until it took over about the western half of Harris County. So it was really good that we canceled. By by 6:45, I think I had already had two and a half inches at my house, and I don't live very far from here. So that was that was good because I wouldn't have left. So <laughs> nobody could have gotten out of their car. Anyway, uh, just a reminder on the tours that are on the DBM page. I'm getting more and more questions about those. Uh, one question I got: If you've been to on an Israel tour before, we always try to go to places we haven't been before and do things that we haven't done before, along with the major sites that we do on on every trip. But there's always some new things and new developments along the way. Also, and you remember a lot of things that you forgot that you saw before. Just a reminder: the men's prayer breakfast is at seven thirty this week, so that's a good thing to come to and meet some of the other men in the church. And it's a good time to where we spend talking about what we've been reading in our Bibles. And, and not everybody's reading their Bible all the way through, so, so it's a good time to talk about the Scripture and to bring your kids, your sons, with you, that is. And uh, that's a good example for the, for the, the young men. Uh, Vacation Bible School coming up July 8th through 10th, Camp Arete July 14th through 20th, and uh, Vacation Bible School needs some... Uh, needs volunteers as we do in our prep school classes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for, so each of us can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the scriptures and to understand what God has revealed to us through the, through the Apostle Peter. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, it's a great privilege that we have to come before your throne of grace because the veil has been torn and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, has opened the way that he is our intercessor, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who enables our prayers, for we often do not know how we should pray as we ought, and he makes those our prayers clear. Father, we thank you that we have this time to go over your word and to get an understanding of, of the, the text of Scripture, the significance of it for our lives, and how it should transform our thinking so that we think as you would have us to think. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the message of Second Peter, and that is summarized at the end, that we are to pursue our spiritual growth in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, you might want to open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start working our way through First, I mean, Second Peter tonight, we're going to do an overview, and we'll get into it a little more in depth. We have 61 verses total to survey. We have approximately 60 minutes, so that's one minute per verse, but we're going to cover it to give you that, that bird's eye view of what Peter has written here and its significance for us, us today. One of the things that kept hitting me as I walked through this and have read through this many times in the last uh, couple of weeks is that Peter is doing something here that is similar to a diagram that, that I put together a few years ago, and the emphasis in this epistle is on knowledge. The word knowledge, the English word knowledge, or one form of it or another is used 16 times, which reflects the various usage of three different Greek words, gnosis, epinosis, oida, in terms, and you have nouns and verbs based on the cognates there. But it's an emphasis on the importance of knowing what God has revealed to us, knowing the truth of God's word, knowing what God has provided for us for our spiritual life, and acting upon that. Thus, it is putting its the emphasis on what is known in philosophy as epistemology, that is the study of knowledge. And that study of knowledge here is related to two things that go either before or after epistemology. And if you remember, uh, several years ago, I developed this iceberg illustration where most of the time when we talk, and at the time I was applying this to political discourse, but it applies to just about any specific issue of application in life, which is on the surface, where we live, what we say, how we say it, who we talk to, the things that we are engaged in, our value systems, our norms and standards, that seems to be, that's at the top. And this is the area where we talk, where we argue, where we uh, engage one another and where we live our lives. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. As the saying goes, 90% of the iceberg is underneath the water. And there are, uh, there are things that are lie behind every value that we have. There are presuppositions and assumptions that lie behind uh, our understanding of reality. And all of this is what's beneath that. So the real ultimate issues are the issues that are below the waterline. These are the real issues that are usually ignored in any kind of arguments or discourse, especially as we're beginning to embark on what will be one of the craziest political seasons in the history of this country. Uh, we are going to recognize that very few, if anyone, ever talks about anything below the surface. And that's where the real issues lie. That's what really makes the difference. And that's what we ought to be discussing. And so, as I've said uh, in this uh, label here, logical sequence goes from the bottom up. Okay, so that what we have at the top is the conclusion to the foundation that is uh, starts at the bottom. 
And so down at the bottom, we have the foundation for all thought. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about or evaluating a movie, whether you are critically thinking through music, the development of music, or what kind of music to listen to, uh, sports, all kinds of things. Every issue in life, there's no issue in, in any area of our life that hasn't been touched by sin. Everything in the creation of God was corrupted by sin. And there's nothing neutral. Not one single area of human thought is neutral. Every area has been impacted by sin. And whether you're talking about uh, opera, whether you're talking about music, whether you're talking about law or politics, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about how to uh, rear your children, whatever it is, every single thing that we talk about is part of God's creation. Therefore, God knew about it, had something to say about it to begin with, and every part of it's been corrupted by sin. So we start at the very lowest level, which is foundational to everything. In philosophy, that's called metaphysics, or that which is beyond the physical. And this is ultimate reality. We don't see it, we don't feel it, we don't taste it. There's no in this church age, there's no direct experience that we have to, with God. We may experience the results of things, but we don't have direct experience. That really falls under the category of mysticism, which is a comes under the second category, which is knowledge. So metaphysics has to do with ultimate reality. That is, is the ultimate reality God, or is it matter, is it energy, or is it just nothing? The next level is, well, how do we know that? Whatever your answer is to the first one, the next question is, well, how do you know that? What's your evidence for that? How can you come to conclusions on that? What's the basis? How do you know truth? Is there truth? What is truth? Uh, how do you know right from wrong? You claim, you make various claims, value judgments. See, people today talk a lot about social justice, whatever that means, and from those who've studied it a lot, it's used to mean all kinds of different things depending on the person and their agenda. There's no set, concrete, agreed-upon definition by any two people. So when you talk about justice, though, that implies some sort of value. You're going to say this is right or this is wrong. Where do you get those values? How do we arrive at them? Well, this is going to be an issue in Second Peter because Peter talks about false teachers. And as soon as you start identifying false teachers and false teaching, what are you saying? You're making a value judgment that it's wrong, it's not true, it's false. So this comes into play. So how do you know truth from falsehood? How do you know right from wrong? Where does that come? And this is why Peter's going to spend time in, and he weaves knowledge of God throughout all of his discussions in the in the epistle. So you have that second category related to knowledge, and of course, as I pointed out, knowledge is a key word throughout this three-chapter, 61-verse epistle. How do you know things, and what should you know, and what is right, what is true? And it's on the basis of knowledge that we come to ethics, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, what is true, what is false. And of course we have a, a the whole epistle is wrapped around the warning that comes in 2 Peter 2, 1, that their false teachers will arise. That is a definite statement that of what will occur. So if they're false teachers, there has to be a way of discerning what they are, knowing truth from error, right from wrong, and then we make decisions in terms of our actions and our involvement and our living our lives, and that's what's above the waterline level. The, they may be political, national, or they may be individual decisions, decisions about how you spend your time, decisions about your priorities, decisions about how you parent your children, how you interact with your grandchildren, uh, how you interact with people at the workplace. What do you do when there's disagreement uh, between people? All of those things flow from the bottom, uh, from the bottom up. And so, uh, normally, what happens is when we start getting pressure at the top, 
then that pressure begins to expose different things as you move from the top uh, down uh, to the bottom. And so that's usually what happens in discussions, and you expose this only by asking questions, only by getting to what, what, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Where do you get that? Where do you get that? And, of course, a lot of people don't want to answer those kind of questions because I think they, they sense that they're going to get caught in a trap, and they don't want to think about those things because they've never thought about them. They just, and especially in our culture today, they're just emoting. They have no real basis in fact. In fact, what you'll find out is they often uh, just argue and dispute what, what is a fact. So this is, just think about this as we go through what Peter says. And I'll refer back to this a few times as we do this overview of Second Peter. Now, as we look at... Second Peter itself, here we have the basic organization. There's three basic divisions, and each is related to each chapter. It starts with a salutation at the beginning that seems pretty ba- basic, but it has a couple of things in there that are important for us to learn and to evaluate, and that's the first two verses. And then we get into the first section, which is the remainder of the chapter from verse 3 down to verse 21. We learn that it is God's will for us to grow to spiritual maturity. Now, maybe one way you can write that down in your notes is to say it's God's will for me to grow to spiritual maturity. (laughs) Make that personal. It's God's will for each one of us, for me to grow to spiritual maturity. And this is why what Peter sets up at at the front of this epistle, because It's necessary to grow to spiritual maturity so we don't become deceived by false teaching. So we don't, so we aren't led astray by those who have various uh, uh, thought claims, various truth claims, various philosophies. Whether it's the philosophies that we see today, we've moved beyond what I've taught in the past on this, which is understanding the movements of of uh, they derive from postmodernism, which is just a, a denial of any kind of absolutes, which itself is uh, self-contradictory because that's an absolute. So, at the very core of postmodernism is a uh, a self-contradiction that there are there are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute? Yeah, that's an absolute. So, why doesn't it apply to that? If there are no absolutes, how do you know anything? So. Uh, Do you even know that that's true? Well, we have that system, but that's morphed today into something even more destructive, and that is this whole idea of identity politics. And I'm just beginning to really get into a lot of this right now. In identity politics, this is important to understand a lot of what's going on in the world today because this is in direct contradiction to everything in the Judeo-Christian heritage, everything that's in the Bible, because foundational to the human being's relationship to God is the principle of personal and individual responsibility and accountability. The individual is important. This is what set up a Western civilization to be distinct from all other civilizations is the emphasis on the individual that every individual human being is created in the image and likeness of God, and every individual is held personally accountable for their decisions and not for someone else's decisions. But in identity politics, it really doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done, what you believe or have, what you don't believe. What matters is what group you're in. And if you are in various minorities, depending on, you can be in a number of different minorities, and depending on how many minorities you're a member of, you have more credibility. If you're an older white male, you have no credibility whatsoever because anything you believe is is just just instantly negated because you're the oppressor. You are the uh, older white male, and you're responsible for every evil in the world, which itself is historically contradictory because it seems to me it was white males that... Uh, fought to free slavery. It was white males that uh, 
such as William Wilberforce, who fought in the uh, Parliament of, of England to stop the slave trade, that everything good that we have came from white Christian males that changed Western civilization. Western civilization uh, began as a result of biblical Christianity that, based on the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. Otherwise, all of, all of Europe was nothing any different from the tribal breakdowns in Africa, the worship of many different gods, all of the uh, <coughs> intertribal wars and everything that were going on in Africa, were going on in Western Europe, they were going on in Asia. What stopped that, what broke everything down, what transformed Europe was Christianity. And that's why Christianity is the whipping boy today is because we live in a culture that has rejected biblical Christianity. Now, I'm not talking about Roman Catholic Christianity. I'm not talking about denominational Christianity. I am talking about biblical Christianity and the Judeo-Christian heritage that derives and is, and is grounded on, on the Torah. And so we have to learn this because what's happening in our world today and what's happening to your children and to your grandchildren, what's happening to those who are going to university is that there is a, an anti-Christian agenda that is dominating much of the curricula. And so in order to be prepared for that, they have to know something. They have to know the truth. That's the real meaning and the context of Jesus' statement that is often misquoted and abused, and that is, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth, one truth. That's his statement, one truth. You know that, and you're free. You're free from what? The bondage of sin. You're free from the sin penalty. You're, you're free from the uh, negative, corrupting effects in, of thinking from, that come from sin, that come from arrogance, and that come from uh, the rejection of God. And so that's why Peter s starts off talking about the importance of spiritual growth, which is based on what he states at the conclusion of First Peter 3, which is grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say uh, grow by singing contemporary music. He doesn't say grow by experience. He doesn't say grow by speaking in tongues. He doesn't say grow by uh, having all kinds of, uh, uh, of existential experiences with whatever it is you're involved in or mystical experiences. None of that is there. It is to know something and that you can know. It just cuts through the philosophical garbage that says, that keeps questioning, can we really know anything? And Descartes demonstrated that after a while, that if you can't know anything, you can't even know that you exist, but you can know you exist, so therefore you know one thing, you know you exist. Well, then we can build on that. Uh, that because he got that, you know, he's building on that from within the framework of the creature. It didn't have a rock-solid foundation, which can only come, uh, come from God. So we have to grow. So what we see in this... Uh, in the overall outline is it starts with the importance of growing to spiritual maturity, which is grounded on knowing the truth. The second chapter is a warning to us and to them about false teachers. He begins by saying false teachers will come. It was yet future. When Jude writes, and Jude writes in his very short one chapter epistle, He's warning, he's talking to his recipients because the false teachers have come. And so there's this warning about false teachers. There's a proper order here. You have to get your, your spiritual maturity squared away. That begins with your relationship with God, which relates to the foundational area of metaphysics or ultimate reality. Built on that is knowledge that you can know truth and you can know it absolutely. And because you know truth and you know it absolutely, you can make judgments of evaluation. You can know truth and you can distinguish it from error. So God warns about uh, false teachers and then gets to some specifics in the third uh, chapter, verses 1 through 14, where 
uh, God, as the author of Scripture, refutes specific false teaching that's in light of the future return of Christ. Because if Jesus is not coming back, that makes a huge difference. Then there's no accountability. That wipes out the first divine institution of human responsibility because it implies no, no accountability. And so that, that brings in a whole area there. And then in the conclusion, Peter, I mean, uh, God mandates that every Christian grow spiritually in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's important. We've talked about grace in terms of a spiritual skill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation as foundational. That's where that comes in at the very beginning of the spiritual life. We have to understand grace or you can't be saved. And you have to understand the knowledge of God's word or you don't understand who God is and what he has provided for you and you cannot grow, grow spiritually. So then we come to the first chapter. The first chapter lays the foundation. It lays the foundation for spiritual growth in terms of spiritual, uh, spiritual knowledge. And it begins with a salutation in the first two verses where Peter identifies himself as the author and identifies himself as a doulos, which is translated bondservant, but it has more the idea of a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. He will give a little bit of uh, autobiography here in this first chapter where he talks about his approaching death. He talks about the fact that he saw the transformed Jesus Christ in, in, uh, <clears throat> on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he will talk about uh, the prophetic word that has been revealed, which is the foundation and basis for knowing anything. And so we see that that Peter writes this epistle, just as he did the first epistle, to establish believers in their faith. There's a sense in this epistle, through the use of several words, that he's writing so that you can have stability. Now, isn't that something we all want in life, is stability? Now, sometimes we can't have stability because of external forces, but at least as far as our own personal control of our own lives, we want to have some measure of stability. Well, if we're not grounded in our relationship with the Lord, then we don't make the and won't make the kind of decisions that can result in personal stability. And so he wants us to be established in the faith. And so he writes this uh, in order to stir them up. In Second Peter three one, he'll he'll state this a second time. He says that he's writing. Uh, this second epistle to stir up your minds, which is the idea of reminding them of what he has been taught before, that you may be mindful. It's the same root for reminder and mindful. In other words, he's just repeating what they've already been taught, but he needs to bring it back to their mind. We all knew that you can't imagine how much you've forgotten that you've learned. And all of a sudden you'll hear me touch on a verse or touch on this and go, oh yeah, that's right. And it's constant. We always have to be reminded. And then in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, knowing this first, because you know something. Again, that emphasis on knowledge. And so he starts off in this first chapter by emphasizing the things that we, we have to know. And so then in the first section, in verses 3 through 11, we can state it this way, that God wants us to grow and be spiritually productive so as to be able to discern false teaching, so to be prepared for when these false claims come along, that we are not taken captive by them, and that we do not falter or uh, lose our balance spiritually because we are thrown off course. And I'm surprised and always amazed at people I run into who once were steadfast and solid and they've just, they, they, they got led astray. And what's the basic problem there? This is the other thing that undergirds so much of Peter's teaching here. It's our own sinfulness. Our, we give in to our sin nature. We pamper our sin nature. We do what the sin nature tells us to do because, oh, I just don't, I just can't avoid it. 
and we don't understand the resources that God has given us. And this is why Peter starts off with this in these very uh, first verses, in verses uh, 3 and 4, he says, um, as his divine power. So he focuses on what? God's power. At the very beginning, God's power is given to us. That takes us to that foundational level which I had in the chart with the, with the iceberg of metaphysics, of our knowledge of ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is a God who is omnipotent, a God who created everything, a God whose knowledge is such that he can create everything and all of the intricacies and interactions in creation. And so that that means that ultimately, ultimate reality is not unstable, but stable because it's under his control. And this God who is omnipotent has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us everything, not some things, not most things, and he gave it all at the instant of salvation. It is all ours. This leads us to the doctrine, the teaching of Scripture on the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of Scripture, that God gives us everything necessary to handle whatever the onslaughts of life are. We did not have to wait until those terrible uh, insights of various people down through history before we could come up with something to make life work. There were Christians and believers in God from the t- beginning who faced all those sin problems we, we all deal with, problems that people have with hopelessness, with despair, with depression, problems with, uh, problems with addiction and bad habits. That's what addiction is. You've just got a bad habit because you've let your sin nature go wild. And no matter how bad it is and overwhelming for some people, it's not new. It's not unique. It didn't just show up this year. It didn't just show up last century. It showed up uh, about 6,000 years ago. And you can go through the scripture and see that people struggle with these things, but the solution is the word of God. It's not going to remove the struggle. It's going to give us the ability to correctly understand what the struggle is and live with it in a way that we can surmount the problem. God gives us those resources. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The first word has to do with our physical life, the second with our spiritual life. And it's through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. There's the emphasis of knowledge. He calls us, and we get this through knowledge. We have to learn about it, and that comes from studying his word. And it's been given to us through these exceedingly great and precious promises. So we have to understand the promises of God, properly interpret them, And as a result, we may be partakers of the divine nature. Now, we're going to have to understand what that means and go into that, but it enables us to fulfill our original destiny as image bearers, those created in the image and likeness of God, to be able to fulfill the destiny that God created uh, mankind for. And that's the way in which we look at the end of that verse. We escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust is the prime motivator in from the sin nature, our wrong desires. And as a result of feeding the lust patterns, we generate more and more corruption in our own souls. And this is self-destructive. We'll come back to that idea when we get towards the end of the second chapter, this emphasis on self-destruction by following the deception of the false teachers. And then as we move into the, the what is, verse is that? Verse 6, we get into, but for this various reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And then we have various values that are set forth there, are various virtues or uh, character qualities that are set forth there. But these are not human character qualities. These are character qualities that are developed through our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And the fact that it says, add to your faith virtue, 
and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. It indicates a progression, but what kind of progression? And see, as you go through these, these virtues, you realize that these are opposite the virtues that were beginning to come on the scene from the culture uh, surrounding them at that time. This is uh, middle to around 60s uh, A.D., and you're beginning to see, you've already seen the main ideas that will crystallize and come together in the second century in a system of truth known as Gnosticism. But you don't have full-blown Gnosticism on the scene yet, but you do have those ideas that are present just like in recent years you didn't people really didn't talk about postmodernism until you got into the towards the end of the 20th century but the term even had been around for almost 100 years but people were functional postmodernists uh, even before World War II uh, they just didn't know what the what the label was for it but it, it has it, it went back that far and you can even see some of its roots in the uh, philosophies of Kierkegaard and and um, Nietzsche in the in the 19th century, this, but it doesn't come together as postmodernism until you really get into the latter part of the 20th century. Same thing with at that time, Gnosticism doesn't come together as a system until you get into the second century. Reason I point that out is you'll read this in various commentaries that Peter is writing against Gnosticism. And there are liberals who assume that that's what he was writing against, and so they then want to date Second Peter. It really wasn't Peter. This was written in the uh, in the second century, and all because they've missed identified what the problem was. Uh, it was, you know, the early development of these ideas, ideas of relativism and secret knowledge, and everything goes back to even before the flood. So that's nothing new. Satan is not coming up with anything new. He just sort of repackages it from generation to generation. And so there is a a list of key character qualities that develop in a maturing believer as a result. So that, when we go back to that uh, iceberg illustration, this is that upper level. This is the area of aesthetics where we have values, where we have character, where we have various uh, uh, various character traits that emulate that uh, the character of Jesus Christ. And then he comes down to verse 10 and he says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So and that sounds really flaky and that's been used by some people in order to uh, emphasize what we know as lordship salvation, that you can't really be sure of your salvation unless you're living the right kind of life. That is not what Peter is saying a- at all. What he is talking about as he moves into the next verse and the next section is he's looking forward to how we live today should be lived in light of the future. And the future is the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we will, as church-age believers, we will have a role in ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom. And that is determined by how we live our life today under the pressure of adversity and persecution. Notice verse 11, he says, For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we're going to note a couple of things when we get there. First of all, the concept of a kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. That's what Christ, the word Christos, is a Greek word for anointed, which is the same as Mashiach or Messiah in Hebrew. It is his kingdom because, as we've studied before, as the greater son of David, he is going to rule and reign over his kingdom. But notice this will be supplied to you abundantly into. What is the grammatical tense of will be supplied? It's a future tense. Now, this kind of struck me today, and I thought, 
Well, the tense of that verb certainly seems to indicate that the entrance into the kingdom is future. That means we're not living in a kingdom today. We're not living in the messianic kingdom in any way, shape, or form. Now, as I've taught in the past, this idea of a perfect utopic kingdom on earth is an idea that was perverted by Karl Marx, perverted by uh, 19th century European liberals, that the idea that through politics we could bring in a perfect kingdom in this world. And that isn't going to happen because every human being is a corrupt sinner. Our founding fathers understood that. That's why we had the balance of power, the checks and balances in the Constitution is because they understood that power corrupted and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so there has to be a check on that power, and you don't want to give too much power to the central government. The more power the central government has, uh, the more the individuals lose their own freedom and their own uh, their own liberty. And then in the 19th century, you really see things shift. You see these ideas of um, Marxism, socialism, these ideas coming into play in Europe and the United States. And we hear a lot about them today, but all of this comes is grounded in the idea that man isn't really a corrupted sinner, that man isn't inherently evil. Man is basically good. And all we have to do is find the right environment, and then we can bring in utopia. And that environment is going to be provided by government. And that's where this comes from. It's a perversion of the biblical idea that you can only have a perfect kingdom when you have a perfect king. And you only get a perfect king when it is the Lord Jesus Christ who returns to the earth to establish that kingdom that was postponed because Israel rejected it in the first coming. And so that is all part of the background for understanding those two verses. And then Peter will build on that and say, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you. And so in 12, 13, 14, and 15, he's talking about this, uh, <clears throat> this reminder that they have to grow spiritually, and that's the only basis for establishing uh, stability. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you of these things. Though you know and are established, that stability, you're established in the present truth. So he, he encourages them. They know this. They're steadfast in, by means of the faith, as he said in 1 Peter chapter 5. And then he goes on to say, I think it is right as long as in, in this tent, referring to his mortal body, to stir you up by reminding you, because you know that shortly I will, uh, I will be gone. So this is, in effect, Peter's last will and testament. This is Peter's, Peter's final uh, letter, and then he will be executed uh, under Nero uh, in a very, very short time. And so he's reminding them of these things so that they can go forward and be stable. Now, as he does this, he then reminds them of what transpired in the first coming of the Lord, that they didn't follow fables, that they had a, they had the word of God. It's all based, all of this is based on the certainty of scripture that he talks about in verses 20 and 21. He's not grounding his argument on the fact that he had an experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's grounding it on the prophecy, the unbreakable, immutable revelation of God in the Old Testament that told exactly who the coming king would be, gave all the signs and indications, and who the and that he would have to come, and he would be the one to establish uh, this perfect, uh, perfect kingdom, and so. He says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. He talked about the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, he and James and John uh, went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there God, the, uh, the, the glory of Jesus Christ and his humanity uh, was shown forth. They fell down to worship him. They heard the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is covered in Matthew 17, uh, 1 through 8. 
And if, as I always say, if you'd been there with an MP3 recorder, you could have recorded the very voice of God. It was external. It was objective. It wasn't their group hallucination. And so then we get this great passage knowing this first. This is foundational truth that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. We have to understand that's an awkward translation. And what it means is that it did not derive from these individuals. They didn't originate it. It wasn't their interpretation of reality. It is God's interpretation of reality. That's what prophecy was. It was a challenge to the kings and the people of Israel to obey God's revelation and his law. And then he says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy, that is unique, distinct men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It is a revelation from above, breathed out from God and into men, according to 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. So the foundation comes in that first section. It emphasizes a future kingdom and that rewards are at stake and role and responsibilities in that kingdom are at stake and that is why you don't want to succumb to the false teachers. Now, that's the warning in the second chapter. God warns us about these false teachers. And we see this in the first part of the first verse. There is the certainty that these false teachers will come. And then their destruction, or excuse me, the destructiveness of their deceptive lies, their false teaching, uh, is described in verses the second part of verse 1 down through the verse 3. And then from verses 4 through 9, there, there's illustrations from the Old Testament that God will certainly judge them, just as he has always judged this kind of heresy and false teaching throughout history. And then this ends in the last big section from verse 10 to 22, that it is based on their arrogance. That's the core of their sin nature. So all of that develops in chapter 2. Now let's look at the first verse, at the first half of the first verse. But there were also false prophets among the people. Now who are the people? Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Israel in the Old Testament. They were called uh, the people of God. Okay, over and over again. In fact, many times when God is speaking throughout the Old Testament, he says he calls them my people. And so Peter is picking up this very clear term, and he's talking about the fact that false prophets showed up among the people. There's a contrast here. He says, even as there will be, not yet, but there will be future tense false teachers. Notice the difference false prophets in the Old Testament. Why? Because the word of God came through false prophets, came through prophets, and so it's going to be distorted by false prophets. In the New Testament, the New Testament canon was almost closed by this time. All the revelation related to the New Testament had almost all been written outside of John's epistles, Jude, maybe Hebrews, Revelation. Almost everything else had already been written by the time Peter died. And so he is saying that, that what will happen in the future is going to be false teachers. Those will come in and they will twist and distort the revelation of God in the new, uh, new covenant, and they will even be denying the Lord who bought them. And that's going to bring into whole issue the discussion on whether Christ died for everybody or Christ died only for the elect. And so that, that's a key verse in understanding the whole biblical teaching on unlimited atonement that Christ paid the penalty for everyone. And then when you get into the second half of the verse, he starts emphasizing the destructiveness of these deceptive uh, heresies. They are, in fact, he calls them destructive heresies because they will lead to the destruction of the false teachers as well as those who follow them. And so he warns that as you get mired into false thinking and false which comes from false teaching that the result will be self-destruction and that is what really lays out not only is there self-destruction but there will be judgment from God just as you see in various historical incidences 
and that it all comes from the lust of their, their sin nature of these false teachers. Many will follow their destructive ways, verse 2, because of, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. That's exactly what we see today. People are attacking Christians. You claim to know the truth, there is no truth. And we are ridiculed and blasphemed, and there's an increasing hostility towards Christians because we teach such outmoded concepts that God created man and woman, male and female, and that there aren't 72 genders. There aren't uh, all of these varieties of of uh, sexes. There's only men and women, and God created marriage, and marriage is for one man and one woman. And the hostility that is coming from the LGBTQ movement against Christianity, just because we believe they're wrong, they cannot stand that. They must get the approval of everyone, even if it means torturing them, killing them, forcing them, intimidating them. They cannot live with the fact that anyone on the planet believes that what they're doing is immoral or wrong. And so they are attacking the truth in many, many ways. In England, uh, they have adopted a, uh, a, a um, diversity curriculum that every kid in England has to be brought up on this total self-destructive diversity uh, concept. And so there's some that are homeschooling, and one of the major homeschooling groups are Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews believe that homosexuality is sin, and it's wrong, and it's self-destructive. And so the government is coming down, and what they want to do is end homeschooling. Because if you have parents training their children at home, then they may teach them values that are different from the values that we want everybody in England to have, and those are going to be these uh, these destructive diversity values. And so there's this war against the truth. Remember the old saying that if some that a, a neurotic person is someone who is building castles in the air, a psychotic person is someone who moves in. See, a neurotic person creates their own reality, but then the psychotic person lives as if that is actually reality. But the person who runs the castle is the psychotherapist. And that's why, you know, so many people are living in sin. They have no stability. They have no happiness. And they're spending incredible amounts of money on psychotherapy and on, uh, on drugs in order to somehow make life, life work. But see, all of this comes from the sin nature, which is what Peter says in verse 3, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Covetousness isn't just money. It is a desire to control everything. So by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. But if you don't know the word of God, then you won't know you're being deceived, and you'll just get sucked right into all of the fallacious uh, the fallacious ideas of reality. They want to force you to live in their psychotic castle in the sky. Uh, so... Uh, but their destruction doesn't slumber. That's the end, end of verse 3. This is going to come. It's a certainty. And then they, he runs through this list of false teachers who have been uh, judged in the past. And so he talks about the angels who sinned. That's a reference to Genesis chapter 6 and this group of angels that took on human form so that they could... Uh, cohabit with uh, human beings. They could take women as wives. It was a sexual sin. All of these are sexual sins. And so God did not spare the world. There's a worldwide flood and a worldwide judgment. This is one of the reasons that evolution must be taught, because if evolution is true, you didn't have a worldwide judgment, a worldwide flood. If you didn't have a worldwide flood, you don't have a worldwide judgment from God. And so everything's okay, because there really isn't a God. It is theology, it is not science. And so uh, it is all designed to come up with a rational explanation for why the biblical norms, the biblical values, are just another form of mythology. And then he talks about the sin of sexual perversion, homosexuality in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's judgment there, and that's in verse 6. 
and yet there was still grace. See, God is not harsh. His judgment may seem harsh, but he's always extending grace. He knows that we're sinners. He knows people are corrupt. He knows there are all these problems, and God has solved it. He has provided the solution, and so there's always the offer, just turn to him and accept his solution, and there is deliverance, and that was Lot. Lot is called righteous Lot here, even though he's living in the midst of pagan Sodom. God uh, rescues Lot and his daughters from Sodom, and they are um, they have been oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. That that sin, sinful mankind in rebellion against God cannot stand for those who are uh, following God to survive and to be happy, and so they they oppress them and uh, they torment them, they persecute them. That goes into verse eight. And so then we're given the great promise. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. There is accountability. In that famous sermon by R.G. Lee, payday someday, you cannot escape it. There is righteousness in the universe, and God eventually uh, will come down on them. And so then they're described, and the, the objects of God's judgment are described in verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Now, every person who's spiritually dead and has a sin nature falls into that category. But those who trust in Christ are given the righteousness of, of Christ. That doesn't make them righteous. That doesn't mean their behavior's righteous. It means that in God's eyes, their sin's been taken care of by Jesus Christ so that they can have eternal life by accepting that payment on their behalf. This is what, what he's talking about, is those who don't accept that payment on his behalf and on their behalf, and as a result, they will destroy themselves through their unrestrained lust. And this is what we see in our culture for the last 50 years. We shifted from a, a legalistic type culture because legalism is just as wrong as, as antinomianism or lasciviousness. Both are produced by the sin nature. Both come out of our pride and arrogance. And so uh, that's what Peter is talking about here is this is judgment that will come and self-destruction. And they are these false teachers then, going from uh, verse 12 down to the end of the chapter, are described by various comparisons like natural brute beasts uh, who are made, uh, made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of things they don't understand. They're speaking out of their ignorance. And so often people who are talking about negatively about the Bible and about Christians don't know what they're talking about. Usually they're quoting Christians who don't know what they're talking about because too many Christians are so legalistic and they don't understand grace that they have misrepresented the biblical uh, view on all of these different kinds of sexual sins. All sin separates us from God. No sin is greater than or lesser than any other sin, and no sin is too great for the grace of God. Every sin uh, is covered by the cross, and that is God's free offer of salvation for everyone. And so as he develops this, he talks about uh, just what happens in in the self-destructive uh, cultural uh, consequences. They <clears throat> they are um, carousing in their own desires. They're just this uh, total antinomianism, unrestrained licentiousness. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that can't cease from sin, enticing uh, unstable souls, they have a heart trained in covetousness, and they are like a, a cursed children. That that just doesn't seem like a pleasant group of people to spend time around because they're all driven by their own arrogance and their own self-absorption. And then Peter says they've forsaken the right way and gone astray. And again, he uses another example of Balaam in the Old Testament who had perverted truth and was willing to uh, pervert truth for the sake of the payment of the king of, um, of Moab. And so he's rebuked for his iniquity. So we need to look at all of those 
uh, different examples. And then from verse 18 down to verse 22, he continues to talk about the dangers of sin and its self-destruction. And even those who seem to have improved themselves, he gets, he says that they are like a dog returning to its own vomit. They'll go back to their sin and they will, their self-destruction will get even, even worse. So that's the second chapter talking about the certainty of judgment, both self-destruction as well as the intensified divine judgment on people who give in to their sin nature and who live in this corrupt manner. Then we come to chapter 3. This is where we get into a couple of specifics uh, related to what is going on here. Peter begins by reminding them uh, in verse 1 and 2 of what has been taught. Again, they're reminding them of knowledge, reminding them of what has been revealed and what they have been taught. Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust. These scoffers are the same people as the false teachers. They are walking according to their own... That's what motivates them, is their their lust for approval, their lust for recognition, their lust to get as many likes in social media as they possibly can. Uh, That is what drives them. It's just approbation lust, and it's part of the sin nature. And because they don't want to be judged... They, they have rejected the whole teaching of Scripture that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge the quick and the dead, those, the alive, the, those who are living in the dead, and he, he is going to then establish his kingdom. And so what they say is, where's the promise of his coming? You know, say he's coming? It's been 2,000 years. Where's the promise of his coming? And then they say, for since... The beginning, all things continue as they were. You have the same processes. That is known in as a core doctrine in evolution known as uniformitarianism, that everything continues the same way it always has for millennia upon millennia, and therefore you can extrapolate back. That's a complete rejection of catastrophism, but its whole design is to give a rationale that, see, Jesus never came back in the past. He's not going to come in the future. Well, yet Jesus did come in the past. He came at the first coming. God has intervened in history and all of these different judgments, but they're in complete denial. It is a form of psychosis. And so they're living in that castle that they've created in the heavens. And so this is how why some conservatives have even uh, said liberalism is a mental disease. It is psychosis. It is recreating reality according to your own antagonism to the internal principles of the Word of God. And this is what Peter warns. He says, for this they willfully forget. They've made a decision. They're volitionally responsible. They forget, they ignore, they deny that by the Word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 1. It is at the core of all these false doctrines, all this false teaching, is the doctrine of evolution, some form of it. You go back to Aristotle, go back to Plato, they had their forms of evolution. Go back to the ancient religions. You go back to the Babylonian creation myths and the Egyptian creation myths, and they all had these same ideas that were just given a scientific camouflage in the modern modern era. But every you go back into as far back as we know in historical times, people rejected a creator God who is distinct from his creation, and they ration they had a rationale uh, to justify their own idolatry, and that's the core of what. Uh, what Peter is saying here, and then when you get down to verse 9, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You may think it's been a long time, but God doesn't count time the way you do. Uh, As far as God is concerned, a a day for you, like a thousand years or a thousand years is like a day. He's timeless. And so you can't bring your concepts against him. And then he warns the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
with all the warnings, all the books written, everything else, those who have rejected God will be taken by surprise just like a thief in the night. And then there will be, uh, there will be destruction. And so there's a number of issues that come up in those verses that we'll have to take a look at in working things, uh, working things out in terms of the end times. And then he comes to a conclusion, uh, starting in, uh, verse 14. He says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That's the conclusion to chapter 3, that we are to be steadfast in these things and to continue to be diligent, which is what he used at the beginning of the letter, that we are to be diligent in our spiritual life. Then we have the last, uh, the last part of the conclusion in verses 15 to 18, that we are to look at the long-suffering of God uh, to allow as many as will be saved to be saved. Remember, God desires that all be saved, but it's up to them as to whether or not they will accept him. And then we get to verse 17 and 18. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also um, fall from your own steadfastness. See, any believer won't, won't lose our salvation but we can fall from stability. We can fall into sin and error, and it leads us into complete self-absorption, and can and we end up living like the wicked and being unstable. But in contrast, we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. The key is knowledge. Not the kind of super secret knowledge that that was being developed in the first century that led to the super secret Gnosticism of the second century, some sort of a mystical idea, but it is the knowledge of the Word of God that leads us to an absolute truth that is available to anyone who comes to the Lord desiring to know the truth. God will reveal it to him but he does it on his terms, which means it's through his word. So that is how we grow. And we have to understand grace, that God extends favor to all without exception because he he desires all mankind to be saved, and it's up to them whether they will accept that free gift of salvation or not. Let's close in prayer. Next time we'll come back and begin our study with the opening verses in Peter, Second Peter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to be reminded that there is truth. There is absolute truth. It can be known. You have revealed it to us and that we can study it, we can learn it, and it is in contrast to false ways of thinking that just lead to self-destruction, the destruction of us as individuals through following the lusts of our sin nature, through the destruction of cultures, because a mass amount of people reject truth. Father, we pray that we might not fall into the trap of the values, the ideas of our culture, that we might continue steadfast in your word. Above all, recognizing that none of us are any better than anybody else. We are have all fallen short of your uh, your glory your gr- and your character, your righteousness. We have all sinned and fall short of your glory. But you have given us a solution to that as you have to every other problem, which starts with Jesus Christ, starts at the cross, and that just as you have provided a salvation that is not dependent on who we are or what we do, uh, you have provided a spiritual life that comes as a result of your grace and the knowledge that is give, that is uh, acquired through a study of your word. And so we pray that you'd help each of us here to understand these things, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.